0: Welcome to the Doodle Kisses Podcast, an extension of DoodleKisses.com. I'm your host, Adina Pearson. DoodleKisses.com is the social network for Labradoodle and Golden Doodle owners, wannabe owners, and the Doodle curious. The goal of this podcast is to provide education, entertainment, and connect with our Doodle Kisses members on the topic of Labradoodles, Golden Doodles, and dogs in general. Today I'm bringing you my interview with parasite expert Dr. Claire Burbick from Washington State University. In this episode, we discuss why puppies are more susceptible to parasites than adult dogs and the things that breeders and others can do to lower the risk of their dogs contracting parasites. We also talk a lot about Giardia, which, whew, I recently had a Giardia scare. Thankfully, there was no Giardia, but this whole topic gives me the willies. We talk about Giardia treatment and why it's sometimes hard to completely eradicate, and we spend some time on worms, fleas, and ticks. Enjoy the episode. Okay, we are here with Dr. Burbick. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what your position is, where you are, and what you do?
1: My name is Claire Burbick. I am a veterinarian at um, Washington State University. I am housed within the College of Veterinary Medicine and within the College of Veterinary Medicine I belong to the Department of Veterinary Microbiology and Pathology and then I also am in the Washington Animal Disease Diagnostic Laboratory. So I kind of have um, two different roles to what I do here. So I am um, Most of my job responsibilities are in the diagnostic lab, Um, so I supervise the bacteriology and parasitology sections within the lab, so we get samples from any species that you could ever possibly imagine and some that you can't possibly imagine and have to google like I do on a regular basis I'm like I've never heard of that before Um, to work either um, up samples that they send in for um, looking for bacterial or parasitic causes of disease and so that is most of what I do and then I also talk with um, veterinarians or owners that have questions about um, their pets
0: and, and things like that so how neat are, so what's what's the last really unusual animal you had to Google An an oxlotl oh so,
1: yes it is actually a very adorable um, underwater salamander from uh, Mexico
0: Wow, an adorable yes. one! I'm gonna have to google that next. Maybe I'll I would recommend googling
1: it because it's like they have these little smiles on their faces. They're adorable.
0: Oh, how hilarious! Okay, interesting. And so, was this an ox laddle? Is that how I? Ox,
1: yeah, ox laddle. Yeah. Was
0: this like a pet or part of a zoo or an aquarium or? Oh, a pet. Okay, how neat. Mm-hmm yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we are a community of labradoodle and golden Doodle owners, and we probably have some owners of other poodle mixes as well, but mostly Labradoodle and Golden Doodle owners. And I'm wondering if you have a dog and what your history with dogs might be.
1: So I do. I have a dog right now. Um he is a almost fourteen year old chihuahua. Um, mm-hmm. His name is Kobayashi. Um, I got him actually when I was in vet school. Um, and I named him after at that time, the hot dog eating champion of the world. <laughs> and he, he eats actually like, I, I would say a, a lab. He just is a very passionate food, booty, I would say. Wow. Um, yeah. So I, I've actually, um, I've kind of had a little bit of loss in my chihuahua family. I have actually three chihuahuas, um, but they were very elderly and passed away in the last year or so. So I just have my, my one old man right now. Mm -hmm. Did you grow up with dogs? Yes, I did. I had, um, kind of a number of mutts. And then I, um, when I was in junior high school, I begged my mom for a pug. And so I had a pug, I had an English bulldog. Um, I had some more mutts. I've had cats. I've had, rodents which didn't really like me that much (laughs) lizard which was also a little bit of a disaster but and then um i was really into horses when i was a kid so i had i had a horse for a
0: while too so all over the board as far as animal species uh would you say you are a small dog person now with the last last few dogs being chihuahuas um
1: i really love my chihuahuas um they have been an, an excellent breed um Probably not the best for children, I would say. Um they do, they did not like my son super much, but so I think, you know, as I think about kind of the next steps, I probably will try and get a more rough and tumble kind of a dog. The mm-hmm. chihuahuas are fairly um fragile. So, you know, with a with a kid can be a little a little nerve wracking sometimes, but yeah.
0: So what is it about Chihuahuas? I and Maybe that's just the ones I've seen and I'm totally stereotyping, but like I often see Chihuahuas running around with like one leg up as if like they just can't touch the ground with all four legs. <laughs> um, I would say that
1: they, um, well, so my Chihuahuas were definitely, I mean, we walk normally, we would, you know, they need walking too, the same kind of thing, um, took them camping. So I, I think... There's kind of a variety of people who own Chihuahuas that probably drive them more in these directions than the Chihuahua themselves, because they're pretty, they're feisty and they're fierce and they, and they're pretty, um, you know, hardy. I can take them out, well, now that my, my one dog is old, so it's harder for him to walk for, for a long time, but I mean, he could do, you know, hikes in the mountains, no problem, so. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I guess it, the ones I've seen were running around like loose and just like you know one leg off the ground half the time and their back legs, and I don't know if that was kind of like the shivery that uh, thing be that you get
1: patellas.
0: Could yeah, <laughs> probably.
1: Yeah, sometimes they get kind of hooked up because they do tend to have that that uh-huh. problem in those breeds, and and so the the patella just kind of gets stuck, and then they have to work it out a little. I bit. see like,
0: it moves out of position. Is it does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Um, so that can make them, um, yeah, have to, have to kind of hold their leg abnormally, especially, yeah, if it's a hind leg, that could, be, that could be it.
0: Okay, that makes sense. That totally brings it all together. And maybe they weren't the well, the best bred chihuahuas and all of that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so you've always loved animals. What? When did you decide you wanted to be a veterinarian?
1: I would say it was probably when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just loved animals so much. And I thought this is exactly what I want to do. Um, and then I realized you have to do science and math. And then I was like, maybe that's not what I want to (laughs) do. Not good at that stuff. Or I, I didn't feel like I could do that stuff kind of as I got older. Um, but then I, I did end up kind of coming full circle back to it when I was in college and said, you know, I think, I think I can actually do this math and science business. And, um, and so I was able to, uh, to get through all those courses and and get into vet school after um, a stint uh, doing some research in uh, HIV.
0: Oh, interesting. And so how did you end up doing a focus in microbiology and parasites of all things? I know I just have to say that when I was taking microbiology in college, it was one of those classes where at the end I felt like I had to shower. I am such a germaphobe. And no matter all the precautions you take, I just felt like I was covered in, you know, whatever germ we were dealing with at the moment. So even like I know myself at the end of this conversation, I'm going to be like, have the heebie-jeebies and I'm going to get itchy probably just thinking about parasites. Anyway, so how did you get into it? (laughs) Um, So I really, I mean, I think um,
1: infectious disease is one of the most interesting and amazing things ever because, you know, it's really the relationship that we have and that these microbes have developed to like live on and in and sometimes in harmony with us, but also there's sort of this level of um, social stuff. And so it's a very complex interaction between the environment, the, you know, animal or human, and then these things that are designed to live off of us or in us. And so it, it is really, really gross. I mean, the stuff that you see is... Is a little bit mind-boggling. Um, I have to admit, um, there are like even though I've been doing this for a while, there are some things where I'm like, "Wow, I cannot unsee that." Holy cow! <laughs> um, but it's also it's it's kind of um, you almost appreciate how elegantly adapted these things are, um, and how the life cycles are so complex and are very specific and uh, designed for this incredible interaction, and so. It's like um, you you get this very healthy respect for them, even though it's pretty, pretty gross. I mean, I can't sugarcoat it. It's it's pretty, yeah.
0: I'm (laughs) I'm cracking up at the idea of respect for like the flea cycle because my last dog was discovered to have a flea on him at the vet, and I think I read for hours, and the more I read, the more I'm like, I have to burn my house down, because who knows, there might be a flea still in the larval stage, like somewhere Mm. on the couch. Okay, so what are the most common types of uh, parasites you deal with regularly? What's, you know, what's at the top? Is it just kind of the more obscure ones, or do you deal with like the things that pet owners would run into? Um, So for
1: small animals, usually what we're seeing are young animals, so puppies and kittens. You know, if I'm going to call or, you know, be a bedding woman, I would say our puppy and kitten fecal floats that we do are more likely to turn up um, with some kind of parasite. So it could be um, like a nematode, like a roundworm, which are really common in young animals. It could be giardia, but we also see a lot of... Um, coccidia in young animals as well, which is a protozoa, um, kind of like similarly to giardia. So usually we're, we're looking at kind of the younger animal wellness deworming protocols. And then we're also sometimes get weird stuff like uh, hunting dogs sometimes are exposed to different food products that maybe regular animals aren't seeing. And so they might be eating some Rabbits or things like that that can give them some kind of unique parasites Uh, So there's a disease that we screen for fairly regularly called salmon poisoning Hmm. Um, so this is a a, It's a kind of a crazy life cycle, but it's uh, we see it in dogs It's actually um, the thing that makes them ill is a bacteria, but they get it by getting a fluke That they get from eating a salmon. And so, dogs that are out with their owners and they feed, you know, they get the nice tasty guts from the salmon that they just fished. And then they can get this fluke, which transmits this other disease. So, we look for the
0: fluke there. Um, And that's from raw salmon. They're not going to get that from Mm -hmm. like salmon you've cooked at home. (laughs) Right, exactly. Which
1: would be very nice for that dog. What else? So, sometimes we'll get uh, some like ectoparasites submitted. So ticks and things for identification. We don't do a lot of heartworm testing here just because I think there's so many in-house veterinary clinic, like snap tests and things. Um, So that's not a big part of what we do.
0: Is there much, I'm in Walla Walla and here on every heartworm map, we're like the little white spot with no heartworm. Is there much up by Wazoo, which is two to three hours from us? Um, No, Uh, there is still not a lot of heartworm
1: but I think there's more concern that heartworm is, if not here at some level, is going to be more prevalent with changing climate. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there is a very strong recommendation to use heartworm preventative in Washington.
0: Mm -hmm. And so just a quick question, I want to come back to heartworm later, but in case I forget. So let's say a heartworm positive dog moves here. Is that dog then a vector for creating like, mosquitoes, getting heartworm from it, and t- passing it on to another dog? Or is that, does it not work that way? So
1: it's actually a little bit of a complicated life cycle for heartworms. So um, a dog moving here certainly could propagate it. But the thing that has to happen is the mosquito has to, um, there's a period of time where the heartworm larva develops in the mosquito and that's very temperature dependent. And so that's why places that get really cool at night tend to not have as much heartworm um, because they have to stay above a certain temperature for a certain amount of time for the heartworm to develop through the cycles in the mosquito and then bite a dog. And so that is really the X factor for transmission. So yes, a mosquito can Mm -hmm. definitely get infected, but then it has to develop within the mosquito based on all these climactic things. um, And if it doesn't get all of those factors, then it can't transmit on. So it's not like a mosquito would bite um, and then go bite another dog. It's not going to work that way. It has to develop within the mosquito.
0: And our mosquitoes just don't last here on this side of Washington for long enough. I I think I've been here in Walla Walla for almost 16 years and I can remember one or two summers when I got bit. The rest of the time, you just don't see them very often, which is not like the rest of the country where they have huge heartworm issues. So I'm going to jump into Giardia okay. <laughs> and, and I'm going to, actually, I'm going to circle back to puppies and kittens. You said that you, that, you know, worms and other parasites are often most common in puppies and kittens. So why is it that they're so high in puppies? What is it about puppyhood that brings on the bugs? Um, so it's a lot to do with them being ni- a naive
1: population, and so they're basically their immune system isn't as fully developed. Um, they haven't seen this stuff before. They're kind of developing their own microflora, uh, and so basically they're just a very susceptible population. They also, you know, are getting up up to snuff nutritionally. They're dealing with other new experiences, so new bacteria, maybe some viruses, um, maybe some other parasites. Um, so we do see as animals age, they become more resistant to parasitic infections just naturally based on their developing immune system. So they kind of do develop a immunologic memory um, so they can kind of take care of some of these things themselves.
0: So a healthy adult dog with a Intact immune system in the same environment wouldn't pick up the same worms or how would their immune system actually prevent them from getting the worms?
1: Um, So it could be more like the worms aren't um, So they could certainly get infected, um, but they might not show they might not develop as many worms um, So they might have a reduced worm burden, which means that they wouldn't have as much clinical um, disease Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, or they might be actually resistant, you know, to developing even a, a patent infection based on their immune response. Okay. Um, especially for certain things, like we tend to not see like nematode infections as much like roundworm in, in adult animals. Um, so it uh, just kind of a little bit depends on the, on the parasite somewhat.
0: Okay. So now I want to go back to Giardia because I have, that's probably the one, my dogs have never had it, but I'm most afraid of it because of some of the horror stories I hear both within our community, um, our website discussion forums and outside of it. And probably just because it seems more exotic and hard to get rid of. What I've read is that it takes so many, it lives in the dirt at various temperatures and it's hard to get rid of without bleach and all these things. So tell us what is Giardia? Where is it found? What does it do, you know, kind of the problems with it? And is it zoonotic? (laughs) Does it pass from human or from dog to human? Yeah,
1: so uh, Giardia is a protozoal infection. It's, I would say, fairly common, uh, fairly commonly diagnosed. And we see it mostly affecting dogs. And so what happens is it basically has kind of a life cycle where it you know, infects, uh, it's a, a fecal oral transmission, um, although that can be a little bit indirect. So if a dog that had been um, shedding Giardia uh, contaminates the environment, and then those animals, a new dog is in the environment, then they can pick it up that way, a little bit indirectly if it's in the soil. And so, uh, but we consider it kind of a fecal or oral pathogen. It's immediately infected once it gets out of the dog, um, which is kind of a bummer because then it's just and to go, whereas some of our um, parasites actually have to develop in the environment a little bit before they're ready to infect another animal. So basically what it does is uh, once a dog, uh, Um, ingest the Giardia, it sort of attaches to basically the cells lining the intestinal tract in the small intestine and just starts replicating and doing its little thing. Um, And as a result, it actually kind of interferes with the absorption of nutrients and basically kind of creates an um, a water imbalance as well and so then you start getting this uh, diarrhea because there's uh, more osmotic pressure and things are are not um, in balance and so the diarrhea starts at that point it usually isn't like actually killing cells it's it doesn't actually infect into a cell um, but it certainly can um, disrupt the normal cell function Mm -hmm. Um, and so then it you know replicates and then starts shedding out into the environment as the dog defecates.
0: So the illness from Giardia would probably have to do with malnutrition and electrolyte imbalance from diarrhea I would imagine Um, if it kept going? Well yeah so I mean there certainly can be chronic animals that are
1: chronically infected or chronically affected, I guess is another word. Um, But usually we see sort of a self-limiting diarrhea um, Mm -hmm. is the typical, typical situation.
0: Okay. You know, I hear rumors in our community about puppies, maybe from less reputable breeders coming home with Giardia more frequently than better breeders, so to speak. And these aren't necessarily like from puppy mills. They're not, you know, the animals aren't living in poop or anything to that extreme. Mm -hmm. But what kind of puppy raising an environment would be more conducive to spreading Giardia? Um, Would it be like breeders who have a lot of litters on the ground at the same time? Or is it because poop pickup or, you know, Mm -hmm. is there anything that a breeder could do to prevent or reduce or eliminate Giardia from their environment?
1: Yeah, so I mean, a lot of a lot of the parasite spread has to do with you know having those that group of susceptible animal to be puppies and having them intermingle with dogs that are shedding Giardia. Um, so they're just basically like little vessels to get infected with things. Um, and so probably making sure that you're not mixing a lot of different age dogs is is one of the you know an important thing because that's a great way to spread disease. The other thing is, you know, making sure that the environment is is really well cared for and cleaned on a, a routine basis. All fecal material is cleaned um, immediately if possible to prevent transmission. Um, making sure that the right cleaning products are used um, in, for the, in the right way and for the right duration because I think a lot of what we see are people maybe not following the directions quite like they're supposed to and that can, even though they're out there, really going like, I am doing you know all this amazing cleaning work, but then it's, they're not quite using the cleaning product as it's directed. So, And then I think making sure that the animals are not stressed have a good plane of nutrition. They're dealing with, um, you know, other disease considerations, because really, you know, we're dealing with sort of multifactorial disease, and we really need to support um, the animals, not only just, you know, to keep the, the pressure of disease down, but also to make sure that they're Their own bodies are as good as possible to be able to combat or to contribute. If we do have to treat them, that their immune system is going to contribute to that response as well. Um, So, yeah, I think cleanliness is really important. Not overcrowding, keeping animals unstressed, warm, good plane of nutrition, um, making sure that they're being um, you know vaccinated and dewormed as needed, so they're not getting any other pressures coming into the system.
0: Okay, so I feel like I'm getting two different ideas, and you can correct me. On the one hand, there's a lot um, somebody could do to keep the environment clean and low stress and well cared for, but on the other hand, it's possible that puppies are just going to get it (laughs) because of their age Mm -hmm. and um, what did you say, something like naïve? a different word
1: yes
0: (laughs) yeah so just being young and having a being totally new to the environment with all sorts of parasites can a breeder or somebody with multiple dogs eradicate giardia from their environment or facility or home is that possible you know so if if they treated all their adult dogs could puppies still get it so
1: if they don't have any um, carrier dogs that are there and the environment uh, has been cleaned up, um, it's definitely possible to break the
0: cycle. Yeah. Okay. And in somebody's home, let's say you bring home a puppy that has Giardia or your adult dog gets mm-hmm. Giardia somewhere, how do you clean to be sure that you've killed the Giardia and haven't just like wiped up, you know, and left, left some of the Giardia um, <laughs> trying to think of what's the word. They're not cells, protozoa, (laughs) leftover cysts, yeah, yeah, because Um, they're not visible.
1: Yeah, so I think um, it can be a little bit, I mean, obviously, we can't 100% track everything or everywhere the animal has been. um, So you kind of do as best you can for the areas that you think have been contaminated. And actually, the CDC has a really nice owner fact sheet on Products that would work for disinfecting a home for Giardia, um, and some of the kind of ins and outs with with control, which I found to be actually very healthy, helpful, and very concise. Which sometimes things can get a little bit wordy, and you're like, okay, I just want my information here. But I think you know, making sure that you know any bedding, anything that the animal is coming into contact with has been. Uh, wash thoroughly. Um, I think they, uh, for bedding, they recommended um, a particular um, type of wash and then drying it for like 30 minutes at high temperature. Any toys that the animals had contact with has to be disinfected. They recommend, you know, bleach solutions or ordinary ammonium products or steam cleaning. Um, So they give a number of options kind of depending on the surface that you're having to deal with. I think probably disinfecting the home is a little bit, well, is very much more straightforward than what I always have questions about is my yard is now contaminated. How do I get rid of Giardia in my yard? Um, what do I do? Because, you know, you can't go out and start pouring bleach all over the place. And so, you know, for, for outdoor areas that can't be disinfected, that are soil or grass or things like that, Um, The enemy of all of these parasites is dryness and the sun. So keeping Mm -hmm. yards short, um, Mm -hmm. making sure you're picking up all fecal material as quickly as possible, keeping animals out of spaces. I think they recommend maybe a month, if possible, to keep um, animals out of a space, um, because they do actually decay. They don't stay there forever, okay. um, especially if there's, um, you know, some areas it's harder because they're wet, they're damp, they're cool, they don't get those extremes. And so, but they do go away eventually, and it's not years. It's, I think they were saying about a month is, um, and, and you can be fairly confident that they're probably gone, but
0: the the yard is always a big a big issue. Yeah. Totally. I'm envisioning this little like Roomba for the yard that like emit, emits UV light and bleach yeah. <laughs> all over just like I've been having a lot of fun doing these podcasts, interviewing interesting people, learning along with you. I don't really want to stop. However, producing a podcast takes time and money. I'm willing to put in the time, but I don't have podcast production skills. And so we have to pay for a professional to put these podcasts together. This is where you come in. If you're getting anything out of listening to these podcasts please consider supporting the Doodle Kisses podcast. If every single person who listened to at least one episode gave $1, we could cover the production of several episodes. If you gave $5, well, we'd be done fundraising for the year. Go check out our GoFundMe page. The link is in our show notes. Now back to the learning. I'm wondering, and this is a question from one of our members that seems to be have a good understanding, but you can correct anything that's off. Um, It seems a lot of vets automatically prescribe metronidazole, and she was wondering when there's a lot of information on veterinary websites stating that panicure is safer and more effective, we're wondering why metronidazole is often a to prescribe first instead of Panicure. Mm -hmm. We get a lot of posts in the food and health groups about puppies with ongoing GI issues, and it's almost always turns out that the pups were treated for GRD early on with multiple courses of metronidazole, and often without a good probiotic given afterwards. So we'll pause there. Panicure versus metronidazole, how is that usually decided on? So if you do look at the literature, Panicure or fenbendazole is
1: a superior treatment for Giardia. Um, It's not 100%, unfortunately. So I do get a lot of calls about people who have done the perfect, you know, been on Panicure, done it for the five days. Still, you know, the dog does great, improves. And then once they stop, they're starting to see issues again. Um, So metronidazole, I think is like 60, 70% effective um, is what they say. So it it certainly could work for some some dogs. But I I suspect one of the things um, and why you do see veterinarians still reaching for metronidazole is because there's some estimates that up to 40% of dogs can just have Giardia and have no problems whatsoever. And we use a lot of times in veterinary medicine metronidazole um, to kind of deal with this sort of nonspecific diarrhea. Mm-hmm. So even if the dog does have Giardia, it's not 100% that that's the problem. So I think sometimes there might be a little bit of, well, maybe this is more of an undifferentiated diarrhea. Maybe it's a dysbiosis or something like that. Uh, metronidazole works pretty amazing to kind of get the GI flora back together. It's it's used very commonly for that. So it, it kind of might be sort of a, a reasonable choice for some vets who aren't 100% sure um, especially if they're seeing maybe a uh, snap test positive, but they're not seeing any actual cysts on the fecal float. Um, so they might be thinking, you know, maybe this is not really what's going on here. So we'll maybe try something a little more or a little less specific than the the panic panicure. Um, I could have just totally made that up, but that's sort of maybe my rationale for why some vets might choose a metronidazole treatment over a, a fenbendazole treatment but definitely the superior if if giardia is what you're treating that that would be considered um, panicure. panacure but that being said it's not um i've gotten calls to say like this has not been a successful therapy either and mm-hmm. it can be very we can have these situations where um, they seem almost refractory to treatment
0: and why might that be? I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question from another member that might that's kind of along the same lines. Um, this member said Giardia has been a weird one for our pup, 14 month old, energetic, super friendly pup. She has tested positive for it and prescribed different meds three times now. She has had it since we got her at nine weeks, having done several rounds of the meds and diligently washed and scrubbed everything often. She has been asymptomatic, but repeatedly has had a negative follow up test. Repeated forced to six weeks later, and then again positive. Why would that? So, what is it that would make a dog refractory or non-responsive to Panicure Even you know the strongest one.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's probably multiple reasons. So, one is there's just environmental contamination, or the dog is getting reinfected. Um, so that can certainly be an issue. There's just a high enough pressure in the environment that you can get rid of it, but there's still enough around and they can get reinfected. Certainly um, you need to have more than just a drug to kill stuff, and a lot of times the immune system has to come in and help as well. Um, And so that also could um, be a part of it where it's reducing it, but it's not eliminating it. The other thing is that there could be some resistance, but it's not totally clear what is going on. We have a harder time testing parasites for resistance than we do for bacteria so um, a lot of that is a little bit of a black box we're not entirely sure if that's a a big part of it either so it's it's probably a number of things the other thing is that we do get intermittent shedding um, and so sometimes they might we might not be able to pick it up but they're still infected and then you go back and test them again and they they would show up just depending on the timing. But I do get a lot of calls from people who maybe they had one bout of diarrhea when they were, you know, a younger puppy, and then they keep coming back to, you know, reevaluate, reevaluate, but they're not having any diarrhea anymore. Um, And so really the recommendation there is to not treat them anymore. Okay. um, Because it's, there are just a certain proportion of animals that are going to carry um, Giardia and they may get rid of it on their own as they age out, but they may also not. Like I said, there's varying percentages that they think normal dogs are carrying Giardia um, and that could be pretty high. That's so um, so it's very unsatisfying because people don't want that. Um, you know, it's it makes things very complicated. The worst is when I get the calls from people who, need to board their dog, um, and part of the requirement is having a fecal float and giardia, and then we pick it up, they're totally normal, but now it's a big problem because they have have this thing that could potentially get passed around, so it's a little bit unsatisfying, but there are, you know, some animals that seem to just carry it and do fine, but for whatever reason, they just...
0: That is super unsatisfying. So essentially, some of you will have to burn down your lawn and start over. <laughs> That's the only solution. Just start yeah, over. I mean, dig it up, <laughs> dig it up, and put hard. new grass down. Okay. So the one thing that like is left in my mind about Giardia. So let's say a dog. Just some dogs will just always have it. How transmissible is it? So if you have little kids that play in the yard and stick their hands in dirt and all this, should somebody be concerned? if their dog has had Giardia in the past? Um, So it is
1: zoonotic,
0: but that being said,
1: um, there's actually a number of different strains, I'll call them strains of Giardia. So the strains that infect dogs don't seem to be the strains that will infect people. Um, so it's certainly possible that there could be some human strains that infect dogs and then you get that kind of thing. It's a fairly low risk for this. I mean, there's definitely other parasites that come from dogs that I would worry about more than Giardia, but it, 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 is, it, it can be zoonotic, but what the research has shown is that they tend to get different strains than what people are getting, um, and so, you know, how much, you know, that will cross over isn't totally clear, but um, it does appear that they have different strains.
0: Um, yeah. Well, that's good. I think I've read that too, and that made me feel better at the time, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So it's more um, of a risk for
1: other dogs.
0: I yeah. Say. I've heard from... I've heard this from some breeders and I've heard it from some people like in an effort to keep parasite populations down I think giardia and otherwise using diatomaceous earth have you heard of that is that effective in sprinkling the yard or I don't even know how exactly it's used and how you would determine how much to put out there but as what have you, what do you know about that
1: um so it's certainly something that can facilitate some Control. So basically, it sort of like clogs up stuff. Is is how it works. So if it's a like an ectoparasite, it can just get. So they're breathing through like their exoskeleton, basically, and it kind of gets um, plugs up holes, so they can't breathe and then they die. Um, so I think you know I see it used for like flea larvae. So spraying, um, sprinkling that around in, in areas of concern uh you know it, it's I've seen it given to to animals like actually as a um as a treatment for like for chickens and things to try and to kill worms. So I don't think it works super great. I mean if you're able to really get it right on top of whatever the it right, is
0: the right place. <laughs> like have it I, land in the I think as a sole,
1: approach. I, I don't think it it's probably going to get you where you want to go, um, but it certainly could be a part of, of, of something. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, there's insect growth regulators that can be put out in the environment um, that can help reduce things. And I think they're trying to, you know, mitigate some environmental control that are targeted towards reproduction and in some of these parasites so i mean there are some things out there but um but they probably have to be used in in conjunction with other things because the life cycles can be pretty complicated as they go through different places where they are different environments different body life stages kind of thing
0: okay thank you yeah and i'm always in Intrigued by the so-called natural stuff, but I tend to prefer like what's been tried and true and has been researched just to make sure that you know everything's well taken care of. Um, now, before we, I want to jump into fleas and ticks. I don't think we're going to have time for heartworm even though I wanted to cover everything, <laughs> there's so mm-hmm. much for each yeah. each different parasite could be a whole show, and I don't know how much people <laughs> want to listen to a show on mm-hmm. each parasite. Um, but you mentioned there are some parasites that are a bigger zoonotic concern that you would be more concerned about. Can you just mention real quick which those might be? So
1: I think the ones
0: that we worry about are
1: um, uh, that people would be, more apt to, to come into contact with would be roundworm, which causes, so uh, it causes thing called visceral larval migraine. So basically a, a person will um, get exposed to the eggs. They'll hatch because the larva are not where they're supposed to be. They're not in the dog. Then they're like, where am I supposed to go? And so then they start going places where they really are not supposed to go, like your eye or sometimes your brain, which is not awesome. And so, you know, it's, it's pretty important, I would say, just as like a general precaution to sort of treat feces with a healthy respect, washing hands as frequently, especially after handling anything fecal or just playing with a dog, that kind of stuff. Because certainly we can get eggs like on hair and stuff. Um, hookworms another one Um, it causes cutaneous um, larval migraines so hookworms actually can um, hatch and then kind of burrow um, into your skin if you come into contact with the larva so a lot of times it's like the dog poops on the beach people are walking on the beach and they pick up the larva that have hatched and then they get these little weird kind of trails in their skin people can pick up um, some tapeworms from dogs too, so it's important to make sure that flea treatment is on board, because fleas transmit a tapeworm, and that can also be, um, if a human ingests a flea, they can get get that as well.
0: Uncommon, but, but yeah. Oh, I can't handle talking about this for very long. <laughs> I'm like, I can go oh. on. There's, there's so <laughs> this many. is good. This so is common. important. So outside of heartworm, which if you're in a heartworm dense area or just in general, if, you know, let's say heartworm didn't exist, how often would you want to see dogs wormed? Do you think it's a good idea to worm dogs annually or keep them on a warmer even, even if there was no heartworm? Um, So I think
1: because of, and I, um, how to phrase this, so I think it is good to have dogs on um, a monthly preventative um, just because of the close uh, proximity, living proximity with with um, dogs and the kind of laundry list of zoonotic things that can be transmitted, um, especially if you have, you know, young children, older immunosuppressed people. Um, I think it's, it's fairly important to keep that... Um, keep that schedule um, just because of that. So, I mean, it's a little bit different for agricultural animals and horses where um, we kind of expect a basal level of parasitism that isn't a big, um, a big deal. We kind of want to keep that so we don't have as much resistance issues. But I think for companion animals, because of the close contact that we have with them, Um, and the risk there, it's probably best to keep them on a
0: a deworming schedule. Good, good to know, and I need to pick up some more (laughs) (laughs) warmers. Just when I think about it, when I talk about it, I'm like, oh, I need them all. Okay, so I want to jump to fleas and ticks. You briefly talked about, you know, if a human eats a tapeworm, which hopefully nobody will, um, but tapeworms come from fleas, Mm -hmm. so um, I've got a few questions from members. There's a lot, I guess there's a lot of members that are concerned from things they've heard about, you know, the, the damage, so to speak, of flea and tick preventives. They've heard horror stories of dogs dying or reacting to common brands. And I just want to hear from you, like how common is it for a dog to react or get sick or have a, you know, have a problem with normal flea preventives? Are there some that, you would consider super safe or, and some that you consider maybe not researched enough or too new?
1: So it's a little bit of a caveat. So I think they're all considered safe, but I think they all have the potential to cause side effects. Um, Some not as bad and some pretty bad. So I think it's a little bit of an unsatisfying answer. And to be honest, I think we need more data. Um, And so I kind of want to start this whole thing first by saying that one of the limitations we have in veterinary medicine is that we don't really report a lot of adverse effects very well. So on the human side, I think they do a better job of this if they're seeing adverse effects that those are getting reported more often than what we see. So I would say if anyone has had an experience with their pet, with any product, there um, is, depending on the product um, and who is sort of regulating it, either the Environmental Protection Agency or the, the Food and Drug Administration, Um, That those should be reported or you should ask your veterinarian to report that because they actually will review that data and then make uh, Either maybe pull things off the market depending on you know The reports that they're getting or make recommendations like don't use them in these animals or Only use you know this dosage or they can have a lot more information to work with So um, I really really encourage people to do that. Um, I've worked with the people at the FDA And they're very, very passionate about investigating things, but they have to know about what's going on. Um, And so that's a little bit of hand-waving to say if you've had an experience, an adverse reaction of any kind, um, it's really, really helpful for that information to get into a, a system.
0: Okay, so Um, if you've had an adverse reaction, don't just discuss it in a Facebook group or post mm -hmm. in a Doodle discussion forum, but actually report it. That way it is known. But in general, it seems like Frontline, Frontline Plus has been around for so long and pretty safe. Would you say that for the most part that's a pretty low-risk topical?
1: Yeah, I mean, I
0: think uh,
1: I would say the the one group that has probably – to, to think about and discuss with your veterinarian, and I'll probably butcher the name because I, I'm super bad, but it's the is, isozoxalines, uh-huh. um, sorry, um like Revecto, um, Credilio, Nexgard, Simparica, and Revolution. Plus, So if you go to the FDA, if you Google um, FDA and tick, we'll probably get you there. But there is a a whole FDA announcement on this group of tick preventatives, basically saying there seems to be an increased risk of neurologic side effects. So they consider them safe, but this is something that has been observed. Um, And so they're, they're kind of caveat of if you have a young animal or old animal or any other things that are going on, then maybe um, that wouldn't be the best drug, um, and there, you should look at some other options. But the the thing with the um, the tick preventatives uh, flea and tick preventives is they're very there are a number of different drugs the mm-hmm. combinations that go into these, so um, that work on different um, with different mechanisms for either repelling them or killing them or Killing, you know, making them not be able to reproduce, and so, um, and then they can be in combination. So sometimes it can be a little bit hard to know what, if there is an adverse reaction, what part of that product I guess could be could be the problem. So, so if if people are super worried, you could consider maybe using something that has a single product in it, um, and then see how that goes, um, and you know try and you know if something happens there, then you can kind of say, okay, well obviously this single product is not um not going to work or you know talk with with the you know your veterinarian about some possible side effects from from the other products if you have a, any
0: underlying disease do you feel comfortable sharing what products you use on your dogs or have used
1: um so i um let's see what have i used i've used um not a whole lot of tick product around me, um, just because I live in town and I don't get a lot of them. Um, but I've used, um, I think I've used Revolution. I've used topical. I think it was the Advantix. I think those were pretty much all that I've used. Oh, and I've used Frontline. Yeah. So I've kind of A little bit depends on, you know, moving around wherever the veterinarian is. They kind of have their own sort of pharmacy there. So I've sort of used whatever um has been kind of readily available. And so, you know, either I'll have a a pill like a um a sentinel plus a topical for, you know, the internal parasites and then something else to get the fleas and ticks. Um and so, you know, I've never had any issues with my own dogs. I mean not that's like an N of three. So, and they're Chihuahuas, I guess, you know, they're small and, and I think sometimes the smaller body weights can be a little bit tricky, but they've all done very excellent on, um, on, on all the, the products I've used. Although there's so many more now, um, I've kind of kept my stuff pretty simple, but I know people, um, you know, have quite a lot of options. Um,
0: Yeah, there's a lot out
1: there. Yeah, so another resource that I think is really excellent is the Companion Animal Parasite Council. So they are supported by drug companies, so caveat there, but they do have a list of all of the antiparasitic drugs, uh, what their ingredients are, What things they cover, so you can actually see, like, oh, this one only gets internal, oh, this one gets fleas but not ticks, oh, this one gets ticks and fleas and lice and mites and everything. So it's a great resource. It also tells you information about um, individual parasites, there's heartworm maps.
0: Oh, that sounds great. I yeah. will link to that in our show notes, so anyone curious, I'll link to that and to the CDC fact sheet on Giardia for sure. Yeah, that one's really, really good. Yeah, I, I've always just used Frontline Plus because it covers a whole flea life cycle, and that just makes me feel safe because I know it's going to get it all. I'm going to ask you one more question from a member about ticks, and then our time is up. Okay, so what she says, I'm super nervous about ticks, especially where I live, our doodle, as do all. I'm sure has a super thick red curly coat how is it best to do tick checks on her given her dense coat and so can you give us some verbal instructions Um, you know how do you check a dog for ticks what's the best way to do it especially when their coat is really thick or maybe even dark like a tick so Mm -hmm. that they kind of blend in so I also have um, another very handy recommendation
1: so on the CDC website which um, is I did not imagine they would have this. They actually have a diagram of how to check your dog for ticks. Um, So it's, unfortunately, it's, it's a little bit, um, you're just going to have to feel for them, unfortunately. And, and also look um, at particular areas that are more likely to have ticks. So ears, between toes, um, in, uh, like armpits or, um, in the, uh, groin area. Um, so basically place like kind of the nooks and crannies, you have to really look there too. So after, um, kind of a high risk activity where you think maybe the dog could have, um, been exposed to ticks or maybe just depending on the season, like once a day, you basically are going to have to sort of kind of gently go through and feel all over the dog, feel for little bumps. Um, So it's it's actually kind of good to do that anyways because you could find masses or other things that are going on, which for those more dense or curly hair coats, you might miss those too, which you don't want to do that. But you're basically just going to have to kind of palpate the dog, the limbs, look in ears, um, look in places where there's folds, um, where the – the ticks are going to be happy and warm and protected so the it's actually um yeah so they have a whole diagram recommendations about how to do it where to look um so that's another um i think really handy resource but unfortunately you gotta feel for them because there's not a great way and you want to make sure you take them off really carefully too so you can't just kind of comb comb through and hope to get them so yeah you got to kind of
0: Get your hands in there and yep. find it. <laughs> yeah, super
1: gross. I think ticks are my least favorite. They really, they really give me the heebie-jeebies.
0: And me too, but at least I can see them. I feel like if I can see it, I've got some level of control. <laughs> Versus like giardia, it's invisible. It's it hiding true, yeah. where like in front of my eyes, even fleas aren't always easy to see. No, um, just no. the fact that, you know, my vet always or the assistant always checks my dogs for fleas and I'm always thinking well they don't have any and one time they found one and I was just grossed out because I thought how do I not see why isn't it like jumping all over and
1: yeah they're very
0: very good at hiding yeah Yeah. okay well I think that's all we have time for even though oh my goodness I could ask a hundred follow-up questions (laughs) I so appreciate your time Dr. Berbick thank you for coming on and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day yeah, you too. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast. If you have any ideas or recommendations for future topics or guests, send me an email at admin at doodlekisses.com. That's A D M I N at doodlekisses.com. Also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts so you can have every episode ready to listen to as soon as it comes out. The show notes will link you to our GoFundMe page, as well as links to some of the things we discussed in today's episode. Talk to you next time on the next episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast.